Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want this morning to look at Matthew eleven twelve because it's kind of a difficult verse. In our version it says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. It's such a hard verse that if you scour all the different translations which I've done, you realize even the translators aren't sure what quite to do with it. It's hard. And in fact, to be completely transparent and honest, it's why generally I avoided not preaching on this text on Reformation Day. We rotate between the gospel readings, John one year, Matthew the next. When we get to this text, I would usually just preach on the epistle because it's easy. It's very straightforward. But a couple years ago for midweek Advent, I noticed... This text had come up again. I was like, man, cannot avoid this text. And now I think, finally, after especially seeing what our Lutheran fathers say on this text, that I have a grasp on it. The hard thing is, so even the Lutheran study Bible takes kind of what I would call in some ways, in Lutheran circles at least, the newer position. That is, that it's about the church suffering persecution. Now, you've heard me preach plenty that the church does, has, and will suffer persecution. So I have no problem with that. I just don't think this text is talking about that. I think our Lutheran fathers got this right, and I think it's quite significant and important. So on this, the 505th anniversary of the Reformation, let us see how they taught this text and what it means for us this morning. As I've said many times from this pulpit, context is king. And the words of our Lord come right after Jesus has responded to the disciples of John. They came, John's in prison, John's confused, John's doubting, as we'll hear in a few weeks in Advent. What's going on? Are you the one to come or should we look for another? So Jesus answers them. And then they leave, they go back with the message to John, but Jesus keeps talking about John. He keeps speaking to the crowd about him. And so we're right in the middle, verse 12 is right in the middle of Jesus' response to the crowds about John. I think the parallel passage in Luke's gospel helps us understand this. There, Luke tells us, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Elsewhere, in Luke 16, 16, Luke will use this very same word for violence here when he says, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time... The kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. I believe the Evangelical Heritage Version, which is actually done by a group of Lutherans, got this verse exactly right. The kingdom of heaven has been advancing forcefully, and forceful people are seizing it. You see, the setup that Jesus is giving us is those self-righteous Pharisees who have ignored John and his baptism and hated him, got him arrested, at least helped to get him arrested. And then Jesus as well, they despise him. And why is that? Because they're preaching this gospel and it's coming forcefully to the people and all of these sinners are receiving it. They're believing it unto salvation. And the Pharisees don't like this. They're upset about it. So the self-righteous are rejecting the kingdom that's coming and advancing forcefully. They wanted nothing to do with it. 
And that is why after the Reformation, this text gets picked up for Reformation Sunday. The reason they picked this text is because the same thing happened at the time of the Reformation. The religious leaders, at least most of them, had become quite self-righteous. They didn't think they needed the pure and free gospel. They thought they could earn salvation. That they could earn heaven by their good works. That's the same thing we see today. It is rare, I have found as a pastor, even among Christians, for people really to think there's a possibility they could actually go to hell. It doesn't matter whether it's Christian or non-Christian. The reasons are basically the same. The reasons are, I'm basically a good person. There's no way God would do that. It's the same lie told over and over and over again. The end of ourselves, we're good enough, likable enough, important enough, that we won't actually get punished even if we reject God's gracious gifts. And so, because people don't think they're actually going to go to hell, or maybe that there even is a hell, they see no need for taking forcefully the kingdom of heaven, grabbing onto Jesus and holding on to him for all it's worth. And that's exactly down through the ages why this day still matters. That's why it matters to us today that the gospel is recovered. Because, you see, for those who see their sin, those who look into God's holy law and say, I am deserving of death and damnation. I know what I justly deserve. I know that if God judged me apart from Christ, I am most deserving of hell. With Paul, they confess, I am chief of sinners. It's those people who see their sin. And in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in Luther's day, it was often those that the self-righteous looked down upon. Thought they were no good. Thought they weren't religious enough. Thought they were just no good rotten sinners. But they see their sin, and the kingdom of heaven comes forcefully, it comes violently to them through the preaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit in them works in kind, and so they forcefully, they violently seize it. They lay hold of it. Taking the kingdom by force, violently seizing it, is the same thing as when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When Jesus says we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the same idea. There's this desire to have the gospel and to hold on to it. And so the heart of this passage, the heart of what Jesus is getting out, what we need to look at today, is that justification by grace alone, right? The fact that we're declared innocent, forgiven, our sins are covered, is all of grace and we receive it through faith alone. And that this, this very centerpiece of the Reformation is not some mere historical knowledge. It's not just knowing some facts that you can check off on a test. James tells us that even the demons know that Jesus died and rose again. And that they believe and they shudder. They're not saved. What we believe and what we hold on to as a church is not mere philosophy. It's not some just mere cold thought or empty thought. It's not 
some kind of mathematical formula. You are not, as we've been talking about, I'm going to keep talking about until you're sick of me saying it. You are more than just a head. You are head, hands, and heart. You are not just a brain on a stick. And when our Lord claims you, when he makes you his own, he claims you head, hands, and heart, your entire being. And what this is getting at, what we have Jesus telling us is that one of the things faith does is it changes our affections, our desires. It is not faith to look at the gospel, to look it right in the eyes, and to be bored and disinterested with it. To hear the holy gospel that your sins indeed are forgiven you and to be like, eh, I know. I've heard that before, Pastor. That's old news. Tell me something interesting. Right? There is a real danger, as we saw last week, that we can have the right words and that our hearts can be far from these things. So one of the things Jesus wants us to do is to repent. He wants us to repent of a bored disinterest, a mere historical knowledge of the gospel. Because it will not save. What our text teaches and what our Lutheran fathers were teaching is that justification by grace alone through faith alone is a fervent disposition of the heart. Your heart desires it. It wants it. It can't see life without it. Now, as we saw last week with Psalm 84, it doesn't mean you're always going to be as excited or passionate about the gospel week in, week out, or day in, day out. But it does warn us. It does warn us about being bored and disinterested with the powerful gospel. The text is not saying that we, by our own violence or force, by strong emotions, storm the gates of heaven and take it. It's a powerful description of desperate sinners running to Jesus and holding on to him for dear life. That you know, that they know, that we all know that nothing in this world can save us apart from him. And we're driven there by a passion to cling to him and hold on to him alone no matter what. Because we know apart from him we have nothing. That's also then why there's kind of this strange ending. Right? Jesus says, but what, to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and you, they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus paints this picture of the Jews and anyone who rejects his ways whether it was through John the Baptist or through his own ministry. They're like silly children. And the picture here is of the bossy kids on the playgrounds. I'm sure none of you kids in here are those kids. But imagine for a moment the bossy kids on the playground shouting to the one group, uh, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We pretend to have a wedding and you didn't participate. You didn't play along. And then they switched to the opposite. We pretended to have a funeral and you wouldn't play that either. 
Well, what's the point? They want the opposite of what's come to them. John the Baptist comes, and he comes either eating or drinking, and they look at John and they say, we don't like you, you have a demon. Jesus comes eating and drinking, and they say, we don't like the way you're doing things, you're a glutton and a wine bibber. Which, by the way, according to Old Testament law, if you're a son who is a glutton and a wine bibber, you deserve to be put to death. What they're saying is, you deserve to die. We don't like the way you do things. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How could you? They want John the Baptist and Jesus on their own terms. They want to decide the rules. They want to decide how their ministry should be. They want to decide how things are done, what they should preach, what they should teach, and how they should do it. Jesus says he and John the Baptist are not going to play that game. John did his ministry, and he was justified by his children, that is, by the works that he did as he preached and taught and as the people repented. Jesus says the same about himself. Look at the evidence of what I've done. Those declare that we are in the right and you are in the wrong. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like people today? When they say, well, I would like Jesus, I would like the church if you changed X, Y, Z. If you became more like us. If you played the game the way we want you to play it. If you participated the way we want you to participate, then we'll go along with you. Don't talk about this sin. Don't preach about the atonement. Just kind of be bland and dull and boring right in the middle. Tell us what we want to hear and we'll play along. Jesus says we can't get caught up in those games. We need we desire that, that we need to repent. That wisdom will indeed be justified by her children. And even though it's directly referring to the works of John and Jesus in the passage, I think by way of application it applies to us. Right? Our salvation justifies wisdom. It shows that Jesus was right in all that he did. He suffered and died and rose again that we might be rescued. And the fact that we're sitting here today believing and clinging to his words is evidence that he went about it the right way. Let's consider all of this in light of Romans 3 briefly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the law is the knowledge of sin. First, Paul says, you have to see and know when you hear the law that you are a sinner. That you cannot save yourself. That you cannot be justified. You cannot be declared forgiven. The law brings the knowledge of sin, but it doesn't tell you what to do about it. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. The change, the change in all of history is that Jesus came in the flesh, was perfectly faithful to the Father in all that he did. So he might offer himself up as a pure and spotless sacrifice for you. For there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot there, but just briefly, Jesus is your redemption. He is the one who buys you back, who purchases you with his own blood and saves you from sin and death and hell. He is your propitiation. He is the one that bears the penalty you ought to have paid. He stands in your place and suffers the very wrath of God against your sin. Why? So that God might justify you. So you might receive Christ's righteousness. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We cannot boast of anything but what Christ has done for us. Now let me ask you, it's a very simple question. How can what Paul just said in Romans 3 not stir up your heart and say, wow, thanks be to God. That's what I deserved, but instead I've got this? How can we not be in awe of that? How can we not desperately cling to the one who gives us that? One Lutheran father put it this way, This faith is a disposition of the heart which fervent desire, wrestling and striving through all obstacles, sighing, seeking and trusting, drive faith to that point that it so seeks, embraces and plans to hold on to the kingdom of heaven, which the word is offering in the same way as those who try to invade and occupy some place by violence, who spare no labors and are not frightened by any perils that may try to keep them from accomplishing this. The Lutheran view is that we hear this gospel and we're like, we have to have it at any cost. That's what Luther says about the first commandments. That we're willing to risk everything on earth if it means that we can have Christ in his righteousness. This violence, this force, is what the Holy Spirit produces in you through the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit through the gospel that gives you a desire for the gospel. As the law works in you, contrition a sorrow over your sin and a fear of God's wrath. It is the gospel that produces in you a love and zeal for Christ and his righteousness. And you say, I want it, I need it, nothing else in this world will do. And so you seek it, you long for it, and you desperately need it. That's all just another way of saying that faith desires and clings to Jesus Christ alone. And it's such a desire of Jesus for you that you would have this, that he sends forth his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word, that your heart would be changed, that you would actually, once you were bored and disinterested and didn't care about it, but now that's all you desire. So the beauty of this passage today is that it shows us with such vivid language what justifying faith looks like. That it looks to Jesus, it wants Jesus, it desires him because it knows that in Jesus Christ is our salvation. So we storm the kingdom of heaven by faith, even here, even now, and we're not disappointed. We don't walk away empty-handed. It doesn't matter how strong or weak our faith is. We'll see that in more detail next week, as Jesus teaches us about that. 
What matters is the object of our faith is Jesus and his righteousness and all that he's done for us. So that no matter what may come our way, as we sang in our hymn of the day, the kingdom ours remaineth. It doesn't matter whether the devil and all his demonic hordes or death itself, nothing can steal this from us. And so Jesus calls us this morning, it's his desire for us to be here this morning and to grab hold of, to take by violence, to take by force the gifts of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. The peace of God passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.